Emiliano, welcome to this episode of the New Space India podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I think we are one of the most uh, inspirational person that I've talked to, at least in my podcast so far, having you know, read the story of Satellogic and how you've uh, built up the company uh, over the last uh, 10 years. And as I see it from having read your profile, you are not originally from the space industry, but you entered the space industry. So just to kick off the show, let's talk a little bit about your background and what got you into the space industry. Uh, sure. Um, so my, my formal background is in mathematics, but uh, I, you know, I have never um, worked as a mathematician. So a frustrated mathematician is what I usually <laughs> list as my profession. Uh, but I've been building technology companies all of my life. I, I started programming computers very young. Um, I started my first software company when I was uh, 15 years old. Um, and, uh, and I've been basically uh, building tech companies um, um, since then. Uh, I'm 45 now, so it's been uh, 30 years of, of building technology companies in a sense. Um, the, uh, initially, I was, uh, I was very taken and focused on information security. So the first couple of companies I built were information security companies. When I was uh, 19, I started a um, uh, company called Core Security with a group of friends. Um, we took that company to you know, around $40 million in revenues. And, and we had, at the time, 250 people doing R&D in, in Argentina, where I'm originally from. Uh, we, we set up the headquarters of that company in Boston, and we were doing uh, essentially uh, software to test the security posture of organizations. So to software would allow a network admin uh, or an or a information security officer to break into their own systems to figure out where the problems were. And uh, it was uh, interesting and, and quite a ride. I did that for many, many years, uh, around 12 years. Um, and uh, eventually, um, I sold my stake in the company. I started a venture uh, firm uh, to invest in technology companies at uh, early stage. Because um, I thought that would be... Uh, at the time, I thought that would be a way for, for, for me to be able to, you know, do something a little bit more meaningful. Um, and I soon realized that that wasn't the case, right? <laughs> I, I didn't like being on the other side of the table a lot. I was very frustrated uh, with the experience of, you know, having to, to kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the beauty contest of having to, to select where to invest and having to say no to 99% of the things that you look at and, you know, finding reasons for things not to work, right? Finding, finding risk and things. And I think my, my you know, I'm, I'm kind of more of the guy who would try to look on the positive side of things and how can we make things work, right? Against odds, basically. And, and the, and the um, I, I think the posture is very different. So I, I, you know, I learned the discipline, but I didn't enjoy it that much. And I also think I didn't, you know, I, I didn't enjoy the kind of deal flow that, that I was seeing a lot. You know, I, I, I was seeing a lot of very smart people focusing essentially on, on targeting advertising, you know, and, and finding new ways to, to position and sell ads in front of one another. And, uh, you know, I, I was kind of disappointed at that. I thought, you know, smart people should be trying to solve the, the, the big problems that we have. And uh, in my mind, those problems revolved around uh, 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 food production and distribution and energy generation and distribution 
and, and how we manage natural resources to do those things for a growing population, uh, you know, in a world that's, that's ever more volatile in a way that allows everyone to enjoy better quality of living. Uh, and those, those problems were kind of hard to, um, uh, to, to tackle, right? Um, and, uh, and I didn't see a lot of people doing it. Um, so I started thinking about starting a new company um, around these ideas. And, you know, I, I ended up building satellites, probably not the most natural <laughs> progression, but, uh, but that's just how it happened, right? Um, the, the, the reason for it is I understood very quickly that satellites were particularly well positioned to look at what was happening in the planet. And, and then if we took the, the big problem areas that I was interested in, one of the things I realized quickly is that humanity doesn't really have a uh, resource um, availability problem, right? We have enough sunlight and we have arable land, uh, you know, and to, to, to feed and give energy to, to, you know, 10 million people if you want and more. Uh, the, what we have is a resource optimization problem. It's how we use the resources that we have, what we put where, you know, how we deal with food security issues, how we deal with, um, uh, you know, using the, the, the natural resources in a way that, that we can make this sustainable for future generations. And that's all optimization issues. And if you look at these optimization issues, there's, there's trade-offs between the different things that we can choose to do with our resources. And we, to analyze those trade-offs, we really didn't have, and we still don't have, a, a good framework, a good systematic framework. And part of the reason I understood was because the information we were trying to use, or the data we were trying to use to, to feed the decision-making models was pretty stale, uh, very old, in a world that, as we were saying, you know, was increasingly more volatile, and I thought would continue to be increasingly more volatile over the next decades and you know one decade uh, later I can say that's clearly the case um, and uh, and so I figured well we need to we need to just build an infrastructure to go and collect the data that we need to to, to feed better decision-making models um, uh, today you would call that you know kind of the geospatial information uh, data acquisition infrastructure uh, at the time, you know, probably would have called it similarly, but, but we didn't use those terms. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, I, but I figured satellites were, were really well positioned to do that. Um, then the issue became, you know, uh, uh, kind of, at the beginning, I didn't know if the issue was, was a basic physics issue or it was kind of a, a, a engineering slash business model issue. Um, I knew satellites were well positioned to collect data over all of the planet. I learned quickly that depending on the resolution that you want to get on the data that you collect, the granularity that you want, you might take, you know, a satellite might take a certain period of time to remap the entire surface of the planet. A submeter resolution, which is where I was looking at, you know, a satellite will take, you know, a little bit over um, a year, maybe, or in the order of a year to remap the surface of the planet. And, and one thing that, that excited me was that it was linear, right? So if you have one satellite that remapped the planet, you know, submeter resolution uh, in a year, you, you put 360 satellites and you can do it in a day. So essentially I was, you know, I, I figured this is what we need to do. We need to put enough satellites out there that we're essentially remapping the surface of the planet every day um, and in, in high resolution, submeter resolution. And well, I, I set out to do that, and uh, and you know, 
basically because I didn't know it was so hard. <laughs> that's kind of the story of how, how the company got started. Yeah, that's uh, quite amazing. And uh, I saw that uh, you, you, know, you went to the US and you spent some time around the, the NASA AIM Center and you probably talked to some other people there and uh, you know, then made your conclusions on some of these ideas. At that time, what was the status like in uh, your region? Because you said you are from Argentina. And I know, you know the Argentinian Space Agency was involved for many years in space exploration. Uh, when you wanted to kick off your venture, was there any traction with the Argentinian authorities? Uh, and you know, what, would the, what was the reception like? Yeah, so I think this is an interesting story and it, and it has parallels. I think can have parallels for, for India, for sure. Um, as you say, I'm from Argentina. You know, I, when I started with this idea, I went to, to NASA Ames in Mountain View in California. I, spent, I ended up spending most of a year, actually, uh, talking to people there, trying to figure out you know, how satellites were built, if I had to break laws of physics to make what I wanted to make. And um, you know, after a year of talking to people uh, there, I realized a couple of things. One was that this was definitely possible. I knew I kind of had an idea of how, how to do it. You know, the biggest concern was reducing the cost of the satellites because, you know, high resolution imaging satellites at the time cost a few hundred million dollars a piece. And I needed to put hundreds of satellites in orbit. So I needed to find a way to reduce the cost of the satellites by a factor of hundreds, uh, let's say. Um, and I knew that was going to be difficult. But after a year, you know, talking to people and looking at how things were being done, I, I realized I, I knew and I think I could figure a path to do that. Um, then uh, I looked at the regulatory environment for, uh, you know, building and operating um, and launching and operating a large constellation of satellites from the U.S. And I realized very quickly that I actually didn't want to build the technology in the U.S., that it didn't make sense. There's just a lot of uh, regulatory burden around the ITAR, so in, um, export restrictions and around uh, licensing restrictions in the and a few other things. And, you know, I just, I just didn't want to, I, I had dealt with, with ITAR and expert restrictions in my information security days. And, uh, you know, and I knew the overhead involved and I just didn't want to, you know, I had to deal with that. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to build the satellites and build the technology somewhere else in Argentina. Um, uh, and I think India is in a similar position, but Argentina had several decades of, um, you know, of experience in building uh, space technology, mostly concentrated around two centers, the CONAI, the, the space agency, the National Space Agency, and the company uh, down in Patagonia is called INVAP, that uh, has uh, been a, a provider for the space agency, and, and they have built a lot of the satellites, they have the high base, they have built a lot of the satellites. Um, uh, in their facilities for, for them. And, and they had had some collaborations in the past with NASA. They had flown some uh, research satellites or scientific satellites. Um, and they were building at the time even a couple of uh, communication geostationary satellites. So, you know, at a small scale, there was a whole wealth of people with knowledge and experience in building space technology. And so what I did was I, you know, I, I, I basically uh, called two people. I called... Um, and you know, I, I had the luck, in a sense, of uh, because of my previous career in, in technology, of knowing uh, uh, a lot of the people 
involved in technology in the country. So I called the Minister of Science and Technology of Argentina and I told him, uh, this is what I want to do. I want to build, you know, hundreds of satellites. It's going to be, you know, like try to implement a completely novel business model for, for, for this industry. And I want to build this technology in Argentina. And, and he basically said, look, if you come back to Argentina to, to, to build this technology here, we're going to, we're going to find a way to support you, uh, uh, you know, at, at the beginning. And I think I was encouraged by that, of course. Um, and, uh, and, and then I called, um, the um, person who run the aerospace business at Inva, this company, Patagonia, and uh, uh, that I also knew from before. And I, I talked to him and said, look, uh, Tulio is the name of this guy. I took to this guy said, look, Tulio, um, this is what I want to do. And, and he said, you're completely crazy. This is impossible. It cannot be done. Uh, but, uh, but it's great. <laughs> and so he essentially... Uh, you know, I, I asked him, you know, I basically told him, look, what I need is, I, I need people to talk to, right? Because I don't know nothing about space. And uh, so I need people to talk to, and I probably need to use, you know, your facilities and equipment. And so just let me go there and set up, you know, in a corner somewhere around there and, and spend a couple of years uh, uh, building, you know, my first satellites. And, and he said, yes. And so with these two, avenues of support eventually the ministry of the ministry of science and technology of argentina ended up giving us a contract um, uh, for it was for a little bit under two million dollars that allowed us to finance uh, the launch of our first two satellites um, and so we spent like really two years uh, 2011 and 2012 in full um, and and half of 2013 uh, uh, you know, started the company, essentially incubated inside uh, Invap in Patagonia um, with the contract. We had some some seed money from from angel investors, but we also had this contract from the uh, Ministry of Science and Technology, um, and and there we built our first two satellites. We built uh, well, actually, we built and launched our first satellite, Capitan uh, Beto, that we launched in April 2013, and and we started building our second satellite that we ended up building in a different location and, and launching later that same year, later in 2013, October, November, if I remember correctly. And, um, and that was a great, uh, a great start. And I think, uh, you know, I always say this is a good example of how governments can support, uh, you know, um, um, uh, early stage startups in this industry. One is by opening up the, the facilities and the capacity and the you know and the know-how of the existing um, um, uh, space community, right? And Invap did just that. We were able when we were there. We we weren't employed because we wanted to do something in a completely new way. I wasn't hiring aerospace engineers, right? I, I was hiring uh, people right out of school. I was hiring you know smart people that were building software and, and electronics and and, uh, and mechanical engineers and so on. But I wanted them to be able to talk to aerospace engineers to essentially, uh, you know, have a faster learning curve about how to build space technology. And this contact with engineers that had experience that have been doing this for a while and so on was was extremely helpful. And I think it accelerated a lot or learning curve at the beginning. Um, and then, of course, the you know the early support of 
the, the Ministry of Science and Technology with, uh, with some instruments that allowed us to finance, uh, you know, the early stages of, of development were also uh, uh, very, very important. Then at one point, after a couple of years, it was time for us to go and do our own thing. So we, we you know, we left uh, uh, kind of the incubation stage, if you want, we left InVab, we raised money in the private market, uh, um, you know, we set up, actually ended up setting up in Buenos Aires, um, so, so a little bit far, a different city, far away from Patagonia, and, um, and we started iterating on the next generations of our satellites. Uh, in the second stage, I say, you know, having as little contact and as little support from the government as possible is also important, <laughs> right? Sometimes, you know, and sometimes what happens when governments get fixated on trying to develop an industry is that they will give too much support also to, to companies, right? So they will keep alive by, you know, funneling uh, contracts and, and subsidies and so on. They would keep alive companies that should be essentially allowed to die, right? I mean, this is normal. I mean, the, you know, companies to die is important also because it allows people to learn, right? If you try to do something and there's no market for it, well, it's better that you, you know, that you fail and you learn and you go back and do another thing, or maybe one of your employees goes back and does, you know, and learns something and does another thing that actually makes sense. Particularly if you don't have a you know, huge volume of, uh, of startups, I think it's also important. It's important to know when to support the startup, and it's also important to know when to stop supporting the startup and let them, you know, see if they fly, right? And I think, so this was also, you know, what happened to us so around mid-2013, we essentially, uh, uh, you know, from 2013 on, uh, we've been, you know, we never got a subsidy, we never got a grant, we never got a government contract. Uh, we essentially had to uh, figure out a way to make it work uh, uh, privately. And I think that's also, uh, you know, um, uh, good in sense of, of things that, that we can learn from the experience. I think both, both those things are, are important. That's uh, an absolutely amazing uh, background story to all of this. So I have two quick follow-up questions to that. One is, uh, is InVap a government-operated company or uh, a, a public, I mean, a privately operated company? The second one is uh, that um, you, I mean, you talked about these grants and access to the minister and so on. Uh, would it be possible, I mean, is it that since you had a background of building a successful technology business prior and people knew you quite well in the, in the social circles at very high levels, uh, would it have been very difficult for others who were possibly very new in the system to replicate what you did uh, then? Yeah, so the, the first question was about Inva. Inva is a state-owned company from, it's actually a province-owned company, so it's not the national government, it's, it's owned by a, by a provincial government but it's a state-owned company in, in, in Argentina. Um, the, and, and the second question, of course, you know, counterfactuals are, are, are difficult, but, uh, but uh, I, if I have to guess, I'd say, yes, it was uh, definitely a big advantage. Not only, I mean, I would say not only in, in, uh, when talking to the government, but also uh, when talking to private investors and, and when trying to recruit people that, you know, I had a previous history building companies that people knew me in Argentina, right? If I had tried to do this, if I, I don't know, had gone to India, for example, tried to do this, nobody knew me, it would have been very, very hard, right? Uh, 
because I had a lot of things going against me. Right? I was trying to build a space company. I had no background in space, right? People had no right to, to, to believe that I knew what I was doing, right? Um, and I was also trying to do something that sounded to experts in aerospace completely ridiculous, right? When you talk to them, they say, what this guy's trying to do is it's impossible, right? And, and so, you know, that would typically, if I didn't have a reputation for uh, building technology companies and doing things, I think it would have made it significantly more difficult for me to recruit people, uh, significantly more difficult for me to try to raise money from angel investors, right? Because they had, you know, basically everything was stacked against me. And, uh, and I think it will also been a lot more difficult to, you know, for the government officials to essentially you know, grant, give me a grant or, or for a state-owned company to like open doors and tell me I'd come in and, and you know, and, and sit in the corner. Uh, so definitely think that that was a big part of it. Um, I think it's also different now in the sense that once, you know, uh, uh, in a sense, I was kind of the, the, the first, uh, not exactly the first, but probably the first private aerospace company in Argentina that tried to do something at a certain scale. And afterwards, you know, this has created uh, a couple of things happened for it. I think the last 10 years, of course, the new space industry has developed a lot. Um, and then in Argentina, having one example of a company that was doing this, I think was also helpful for other people to, you know, to believe this could be done in the country, to believe uh, that, you know, the talent was there, to believe that, that you know, that, that this wasn't crazy and, and you needed, had to be, you know, at, at NASA to, to go and do these things. And so I think that was also, that is also important. And you can see now in Argentina, I mean, there's not a huge ecosystem, but there's probably around 10 or 15 um, uh, new space companies that have started over the last few years. And, and of course, if you, you know, Argentina is uh, population is around 40 million people, right? Uh, and I think we kind of have the same, you know, the history, I mean, less, aerospace experience that India for sure, uh, you know, and, and, and probably more startups, right, uh, in, in, in aerospace, which, uh, you know, with that very, very small population comparatively, right? So I think there is a, um, uh, you know, an ecosystem effect that is created by kind of the, the, the pathfinders, you know, the companies that, that build the first and, and that show that this is possible, that this is possible to do there and so on. And I think we played a little bit that role for the, the aerospace industry and maybe continue to play that role in, in a certain sense um, in Argentina. And I think, you know, for the company that plays that role, maybe they have to have some unfair advantages like I had in the sense of, you know, uh, starting from a place that allows them to, to, to break this path of resistance, right? But for the companies that come after it, that's just not the case. And it, you know, if you look at the next generation of, of companies started in Argentina over the past few years, you know, they didn't have founders that had particularly any track record. Uh, they did, uh, and, but, but what happened is people started to believe that this was possible and, and you know, started to be open to the idea of big pitched um, aerospace companies. And, and, and I think, you know, that, that, that's, um, um, that's a good process, I think. Um, so, um, yeah. But it could have worked different ways, right? If I, instead of having built technology companies before, I came from the aerospace industry and was, you know, a, a very well-respected engineer from the aerospace industry. I think I could, it could also be enough to 
to kind of uh, build this this credibility, right? It's in a sense it's, our, it's around uh, you know steps and steps to build credibility and use risk and and you know and, and how you do that so so that you're allowed to essentially continue to try to to build. <laughs> Right, and when you were trying to build your uh, team up, uh, there's uh, two problems that you face, right? Uh, one is, of course, the, the kind of the quality of the team in terms of the experience, and you said you were trying to recruit people off of uh, university or so on. And so one part of it is, uh, did you see a lot of the traction for you know, movement of the IP that was built up in the space agency and the credibility and the heritage flow down to what you were trying to build? The second part is uh, with respect to the supply chain. You see, you know, even in countries like India, we don't have a lot of the semiconductor base for, let's say, having solar cell manufacturers within India or you know, imaging uh, sensor manufacturing uh, manufacturers in India. So we import a lot of it, but then we put the IP together in a way we can do the AIT. And it seems like that is what you also did. So uh, what is it that uh, you, know, you can comment on these two particular aspects that uh, gave you, in a way, some unique benefits of, of you know, building out of Argentina? So the, the first thing I, on the first topic, what I would say is uh, uh, we were trying to do something very different than, you know, than the way it was being done by the aerospace industry 10. I mean, even today, I would say, you know, the idea of building satellites are of commercial shelf components and the idea of, of you know, of uh, doing agile development for satellites and continuous software integration. So these are ideas that I have taken on in the last uh, 10 years. And, you know, and today, this is not crazy. And today, actually, space agencies have tried, attempted and done, you know, versions of this internally and so this is kind of established concept now but when we started back in 2010 2011 you know this was considered uh as sacrilegious right and and, uh, and and space agencies didn't have any history and any know-how any specific ip that we could use right um so we had to build it all from scratch basically um and so we we never really looked closely at being able to reuse any ip coming from space agencies because Basically, we thought it would just be too expensive, too you know, old, too <laughs> cumbersome. We just need to build it new, right? Uh, so that was one part, which you know made things easier. I mean, we were trying to, you know, we were the, the reason we we you know we wanted to be close to Inbat, we wanted to be close to 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 you know people that had experience in aerospace, because they they basically look if you might spend at the beginning you don't even know what the problems are, right? Like. <clears throat> So uh, particularly because we didn't have aerospace engineers and we didn't want to hire aerospace engineers. So, so you know, it's like nobody had learned in school how to build a satellite, right? We had to essentially figure out what needs to go there and, and, and how to put it together and where the problems were. And that helped us a lot. On the uh, supply side, you know, I think uh, coming from Argentina, again, uh, we just never assumed that we would have local supply for what we wanted to do, right? So, I mean, for some things we tried, like, you know, uh, uh, machining of some precision parts, you know, and, and, and in aluminum, for example, the kind of thing you can probably do locally. And, and there was a group uh, at an institute that had experience assembling solar panels out of solar cells that were coming from you know, from, from Germany or, and, and, and we could tap into, into some of the capabilities. And we, you know, over time had a couple of suppliers locally that we 
tried, and, but we always knew that we had to plug into um, um, distributed international supply base. Um, so from the beginning, we, we, we set out to do that. We set out to, to establish the connections to, you know, around, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, 100 and something suppliers in, in 30 countries, basically. And, uh, and, and, and gather, um, uh, you know, component and, and, and essentially in some cases even do, you know, we would design things that they would build for us, uh, to specification and, and that they would integrate into our satellites. Right. So establish this international network. I think this was a big part of, of how we approached it. Uh, today, I think you can, um, you know, you can do that. I mean, you can, you, you know, you, I think we, we were essentially taking advantage of the fact that we could uh, do computer um, uh, aided design and, and even testing in some cases and, and that we could do, do rapid manufacturing to test things and, uh, and, and that we could, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, take, take those things and, and build them into a satellite without having to build all the parts ourselves, right? Um, so I think that was, that was how we approached it. Eventually what happened is the import and export regulations and processes in Argentina just weren't up to what we needed to be able to, you know, do this at scale and do it fast and, and essentially do it in, you know, just in time. Uh, because, you know, when you're, or satellites are, you know, they have 450 different sub-assemblies. It sub-assembly has maybe 20 different components. So you're talking about, you know, 10,000 components that you need to source and, and you know, and, and, and integrate. Uh, and, and also you're a small company, not a lot of budget. So you don't want to have, you know, a year of inventory <laughs> sitting in the shelves, right? Uh, so you want to do this with minimum inventory. And, and so you want to do that kind of in just in time or real time. And um, one thing is to build a prototype or two prototypes where you can go through the hoops of how you import the things and how you, you know, but when you have to build an assembly line, right, as we were doing, at some point the, the regulation in Argentina for imports and exports was just too cumbersome for us to deal with. And what we did is we went and set up a manufacturing facility in Uruguay across the border from Argentina in a free trade zone basically. Uh, so operating inside of a free trade zone, basically, or manufacturing integration or AIT facility inside of free trade zone, basically guaranteed that we could get things in and satellites out as fast as we needed, right? And I think that was also a big piece of, of you know, of how we, of how we managed to, to, to deal with uh, complications that I'm assuming, you know, you will have in India as we had in Argentina, right? So, so I think this is a great, great tool if, if, it can, if you can replicate it, it's just, you know, being able to build a space park with a free trade zone, you know, in a way that, that essentially allows you the, the, you know, the chance to, 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 to really integrate into a global supply chain um, in, in a very direct way, right? Um, what about the access to frequencies, you know, uh, license to sell satellite imagery? I mean, these are things that you touched upon from the U.S. perspective. And given that you have now an assembly center in, in Uruguay, but you are operating out of Argentina, how does it work? Uh, is it e easier to get it out of uh, Argentina? 
Uh, yeah, so frequency coordination. The interesting thing is, you know, frequency coordination, you can, you can pretty much, uh, you, you need a sponsor. I mean, you need a sponsor country and you need for, for both things, for registering the satellites to, in front of the UN and, and for, uh, for frequency coordination. They don't have to be the same country, actually. Uh, ideally, they are. Uh, they don't have to. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think that there it's just a matter of, you know, of, of the country having the dynamism that is necessary to, you know, and the, and the structure that is necessary to, to support, you know, uh, uh, interfacing with the ITU and, 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 and dealing with, uh, because there's, an, this is not, it's not a complicated process. It's not a, uh, you know, a costly process, but it's a process. You have to, you have to be able to do it and manage it. And, and the country has to have the, the you know, the capacity or the, institutions to, you know, with the intention of supporting, uh, uh, you know, companies to do that. Um, uh, you know, what, what we found working out of countries that didn't have a lot of experience because we were essentially the first private company to launch satellites, both from Argentina and Uruguay, I'd say. Um, um, what we found is that, you know, space is very sexy. Uh, business, right? And and people want to help. Like this is the thing, right? Like if you if you talk to them, say like, yeah, we're trying to put these things in orbit. You know, they they want to help. They want to help you do that. And so we we found that to be a, a great way to you know to, to approach people, and we had a lot of support. Um, and uh, and I think uh, I I wouldn't think that's a big. Um, uh, complication in general. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a process. You have to go through it. Um, and regarding the imaging licensing, uh, you know, different countries have different rules and different regulations about what companies in the country can do in terms of capturing imagery and selling imagery, but also they, you know, different countries have different regulations of what, what kind of imagery you can sell uh, locally, right? So when it comes to what we sell and where we sell it, of course, we have to comply with every country's regulation when we sell in a particular country, right? When it comes to, to the regulations for operating constellations of imaging satellites, well, uh, Argentina and Uruguay don't have any regulations when it comes to operating or any licensing requirements to operate constellation of imaging satellites. This, I think, is advantages compared to, to you know, the U.S., where you have to go through a NOAA licensing process and so on, even though it's, you know, there's been some changes in the regulation in the U.S. and, and it's getting significantly better and easier and, and faster than it was, you know, when I looked at it 10 years ago and decided not to deal with it. Um, uh, I also would say that, uh, you know, being in, in, in a place where, where the regulations are easy and simple and, and I, I think makes yeah, make things, of course, significantly easier, right? And the legal overhead and, and you know, just the, the, the headaches of having to deal with, with paperwork and, um, and bureaucrats and <laughs> uh, government uh, uh, needs, you know, I think all of that is, you know, I think it's, uh, uh, it's helpful. Of course, you know, the counterpart is, and you know, this is probably, you know, it's the counterpart is, yes, the ecosystem is a lot less developed. You don't have a large local supply chain. You don't have a lot of, you know, as many people train. You don't have a lot of previous experience of people building startups. You don't have the, um, uh, 
venture capital, you don't have, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't have, right? But, but, you know, but you can also enjoy some of the benefits of the things that are not there, right? I think the, the worst case scenario would be probably if you have a lot of regulation and none of the, uh, and, and none of the, you know, ecosystem basically to support company formation, company growth, right? Um, I hope that's not the case in India, but, uh, you know, in the U.S. you have both the perfect ecosystem to support company formation and company growth, and you also have, you know, a long uh, uh, history of, of uh, regulation space, which makes a lot of sense, and a lot of government and defense interests that makes it, you know, uh, um, heavily regulated industry, as a dual-use industry makes it a heavily regulated industry. Uh, you know, you go to a, a country like Argentina, you don't have anything, you don't have the ecosystem, but you also don't have the, you know, the, the, the regulatory frameworks, right? And, and sometimes uh, if you can navigate that, um, uh, that makes your life easier, right? At least in some ways. Yeah, that's an interesting point because that is exactly what I wanted to ask you next is, uh, which is the investors, because it is maybe easy to raise, uh, you know, one or two million in seed or even Series A venture capital in, you know, at least in countries like in India, you can raise a little bit of money, maybe up to five million or so on in uh, in some VC funding. But beyond that, uh, you know, raising money in especially like a high tech sector in space is uh, really really difficult because the fund sizes are itself very small. So you can't expect, uh, you know, an investor. I you know don't foresee. Uh, traditional VC, you know, fund investing like 50 million in a space startup in India that can only happen through a extremely large family office or some other instrument or even maybe then international investors. And I saw that you did raise money from Tencent and, and a few others. So uh, obviously you had to go abroad to look at investors uh, who were interested in investing capital. So how did this whole process occur and, uh, you know, what made you to choose uh, some of them? Yeah. So yeah. So we've raised we've raised uh, a little bit over a hundred million dollars over the years. Um, the uh, and we've never raised from you know any large amounts from from traditional venture capital firms um, for a few different reasons. First, the venture capital environment is not as well developed in Latin America. Uh, the the venture capital that is developed in Latin America is focused on other industries, right? Mostly retail and and you know other things. Um, so, so I, I don't think there was ever a possibility, you know, the, the venture market in the U S is in theory open to investing in, in companies that are not from the U S and if you have the right, uh, you know, kind of reasons for not being there and so on, it's not completely impossible, at least in theory, in practice, what, you know, what I found is that, you know, the, 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 the dollars don't always follow the uh, way people talk about what they do, right? <laughs> so, so, so I think it's, it's not impossible. It's just, uh, you know, it's just a, a burden, an additional burden. And, you, you know, I, situation might be different today, but over the years for us, you know, we were in an industry that VC is not very familiar with, right? Venture capital is not, they, venture capital does not have a track record of, you know, 20 years of investing in space companies, and they cannot identify which ones are going to work and which ones are not going to right? Like venture capitalists are essentially pattern recognition and pattern matching <laughs> machines, right? And uh, they, if they can't find, you know, the pattern um, uh, to success, then, you know, it, it makes the decision significantly harder. There's still, 
individuals that can make those decisions, but it makes it significantly harder. Um, so you have that. Uh, you have the fact that you're a foreign company, and you start putting the things together, and you start adding risk to you know to any potential investment to the point that I, I agree with you is probably unlikely uh, that that's you know that that's going to happen for a uh, you know an international company to raise venture capital in this industry uh, even today. I do. Um, uh, so we, we focused from the beginning on, on two different funding sources. And we've talked to every venture capital out there, but we focused on two funding sources. We focused on um, uh, family offices, as you said, and we focused on strategic investors. So companies that have, uh, because they are uh, in the markets that we're aiming to, to sell to, or because they are interested in the potential of the technology in the future, that they are interested in um, uh, being close to and having a stake in a company that will develop new technology that can affect their markets, that can affect, uh, you know, or, or build new markets where they could play or that can, you know, uh, help them solve some of the problems in their industry. So we've, you know, we've focused. And so, so that has been the major source of funding for us um, uh, over time. Um, and, uh, you know, there are and there will be more space-focused uh, venture firms and there will be more experience in, 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 you know, successful exits and successful stories in the uh, space industry over time that, you know, I think would allow to develop a, a, a more um, active venture ecosystem for space. But for the time being, I, I would think that, uh, you know, um, uh, it's probably not the easiest uh, uh, source of funding for space startups. The other thing that plays against that is that venture capital firms are typically on a specific timeline, right? Depending on where you where where the cycle of their fund are, but typically investment cycles for a venture capital fund are you know uh, four years of investment period, and then you know four years or five years of divestment period. It's basically, in eight years or ten years, you have to essentially go through the whole cycle of the fund and and space takes a little bit more time right space is not you know you you will not develop a company to fruition let's say and to maximize uh, uh return in in a 10 in, you know an eight year or, or a 10 year period in general i think for any any project that you know that that has the potential to be you know industry shaping uh it's going to take you more time and uh, and that doesn't adapt very well to to the venture capital mindset and and the way the, the venture capital investment vehicles are structured. So I think that's also a, a you know an argument and point for going uh, for you know more um, the route of angel investors, individuals, family offices, and, and strategic investors as potential sources of funding until you can actually prove that you have the growth to to start qualifying for you know, private equity or, or, or eventually public markets, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And with respect to your uh, you know strategy on which really the pockets of data to focus on, I saw that you're trying to do like uh, sub-meter multispectral and like 30 meter hyperspectral or so on. Uh, what was the logic behind this? Was it that... Uh, Sentinel and others are giving out a little bit coarser resolution at free and you want to focus on submeter at a lower price point and 
and also the hyperspectral was uh, I, I guess it was something very new when you started and were you exploring like some of the new applications there yes yeah, submeter uh, submeter is really necessary for 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 most mainstream applications for earth observation data right uh, now the way i talk about it is look there's a reason we call the meter a meter right and it's not a different size it, the reason is this, this is where you know human activity happens right this is the scale at which human activity happens and uh, and so i think it's not a coincidence that that's kind of the threshold when you start imaging at a meter and actually if you consider Nyquist sampling, you know, get to maybe 50 centimeters where you can actually see things that are a meter, uh, you know, in, in a good, uh, in, with good contrast. Um, uh, I think that's the point at which you discover most of the mainstream applications uh, for, for Earth observation data. And uh, so we have been focused on, on, on this measure uh, and we have been focused on opening up the Earth observation markets for mainstream applications. That requires two things. It requires hitting the right resolution, uh, and it requires hitting the right combination of frequency, of data acquisition, and cost. So you have to, you know, be able to collect data reliably. You have to be able to collect so reliably in the sense of, you know, if I want data every day, I need to have a source of data every day. If I need data every week, I need to have a source of data every week. Right? You need to have a reliable source of data. You need to have it at an affordable price. And, and you need to have it in a way that, you know, that is, that is usable, that people can access it and tap it, that is, you know. Um, and, and that combination, you know, frequency, cost, usability, uh, reliability of the data source, this is really where I think the, the, the market is going to be played in the next few years, is who hits the infrastructure in orbit to be able to deliver data to customers effortlessly at the right resolution, at the right cost, um, and, and that's the vision we're after. You know, we, we basically want to build what we call a information utility from orbit, right? We want to build, uh, you know, something that is similar to you going and opening the water faucet on your home, right? You just open the water faucet, the water comes out, right? And, and, you, and you drink it, you do whatever you want with it. And, or you plug into your wall socket and you get electricity, right? The, the ease of use and the reliability of uh, utility and, you know, and the um, affordability of a utility. This is what we're going for, but for Earth or, or geospatial information, right? And, uh, and to do that, well, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated to realize the vision. There's a lot of technology factors, but mostly there's a factor of being able to distribute data um, you know, at the right cost and, and the economics become really important. That's kind of been the driver for technology. But... Yeah, what is also interesting in your story, or at least what I have, since what I've read so far, is that um, unlike the typical American new space startups, uh, which then go on to typically get a lot of military-based grants to keep their company alive while they scale up, uh, you know, their Earth observation systems, uh, you seem to focus uh, more on just getting the the markets to absorb your your information and data, and uh, you know what do you think about this or this approach that traditionally I see a lot of American companies just raising money and then going after NGA contracts and you know the the typical military realm to to I guess get some some kind of a you know money runway to to extend their uh, you know their lifetime, I guess, to just to build up their constellation. 
So I think it's a it's a byproduct of the cost of data acquisition and distribution in a sense because when when the cost of acquiring a square kilometer of data and, and distributing a square kilometer of information to your customer uh, is is high, um, uh, you know there's just not a, it doesn't matter what the resolution is and that, but there's just not a lot of applications that can support that. I mean, if you're thinking, you know, small farmer in India, you know, to, for them to use satellite-based information to improve the decision-making in, in, in how they plant or harvest crop, you know, if they have an average of like one or two acres of land, uh, you know, the, first of all, the, the cost needs to be, of the survey needs to be low enough that it actually makes sense, right? Uh, uh, secondly, you know, they're not going to want the satellite image. They're going to want information that's processed and, you know, transformed into something that they can relate to, right? And, and so you have to hit all these different things to go after that market, right? And it's hard. I mean, if you, if you have a high-resolution imaging satellite, yeah, Landsat, for example, or, or this Pablo or Sentinel, they're just collecting data over the surface of the planet, you know, at low resolution or mid-resolution, but, but the data, they're distributing the data very cheaply. And this data, you can think of how to use this data to, to build applications for, you know, for anybody because the data is essentially, is, 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 you know, it's free. Uh, but when you go to, uh, the problem is you cannot use this data for, you know, for one acre or two acres of land, right? Because, the, you know, your pixel size is bigger than that. And, or, you know, not, not exactly, but you only get a few pixels, right? Uh, so, so you need high resolution data. When, when you go to high resolution data, the way we operate satellites today, you know, you have to point high resolution uh, satellites to their targets and, 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 and there's an opportunity cost there and you have to transfer that opportunity cost to customers and that opportunity cost ends up being the driver of the cost of data in the hands of the customers. And until you can drive them down, you know, you can, you will only cater to applications where the customer can pay for the opportunity cost, right? And look, you can do this in many ways, in any way that you that you want. But but I think in the end, what happens is the only customers out there they're you know not looking at the cost, just looking at the value that they can get from the data is is the is the uh, uh, defense and military customers, right? And and so I think that's the reason why the, you know every other company in, in this industry has focused there because those are the ones that essentially can pay the data, the cost that is being acquired and, and the cost of distribution. Um, we're trying to do something different. We're trying to really democratize access to, to, to higher resolution data. We focus a lot on youth economics. We focus a lot on our distribution costs so that we can actually hit the right uh, combination of resolution frequency and also affordability so that we can open up some of the mainstream applications of this technology. And, and, and so we have a, uh, you know, a, a company-wide policy that our technologies uh, is used for peaceful use only uh, that, uh, uh, and, and, and really, you know, uh, that, that we want to democratize and, 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 and give everyone the ability to, to use the sources of data to improve decisions on, you know, on, on, on real problems, like we were saying at the beginning, right, water, energy, uh, food, uh, you know, the things that, that we believe will make all of us uh, better off, in a sense, right? So that's, that's what we're in. Yeah, actually, well, one of the things that I did is actually did my PhD on looking at satellite data analytics in uh, the supply chain context. 
So really integrating satellite big data into end markets, uh, including agriculture, energy, and other things that you talked about. But I had an India focus, completely India focus. Uh, so one thing that I saw you know, through this time when I was doing my PhD is that uh, there's a lot of B2B markets that you can unlock. Uh, certainly, there is uh, some B2B unlo- uh, you know, markets that you can definitely unlock when it comes to these agriculture and other uh, aspects. But, uh, you know, when it comes to a large portion of the administration of things like water, agriculture, there's a very heavy hand of the government in either providing subsidy or either providing, you know, programs or providing access to credit or insurance and many other things. There's a lot of government involved in all of that. And of course, the other part is that there is almost no affordability or it is extremely difficult to build a B2C model. Uh, it may not be a business to customer. I call it a business to citizen model. Uh, so, so that's very challenging to build because just the appetite to pay for something like that in a small farmer in India does not exist, right? So you yeah. have this niche of a B2B that you can exploit, but the real big opening is comes from unlocking this B2G kind of models where you have the government to replace the traditional methods to use your satellite data in, a, in a creating this efficiency in the programs and the subsidy programs and the other things that they have, right? So how do you overcome all of this? And do you see a market for this in, uh, I also see that, you know, for me, I think like markets like Europe and US are very saturated because there's too many players and, you know, too little like to, and too many players fighting over the same pie. But I see more scope for a country like India or Africa, where there is a very little market understanding of somebody who's coming from US of the local environment in India. And there's a lot of opportunity because there's no, absolutely no such tools being used currently. So where do you see out of all the two things, you know, how do you see this evolving? Yeah, so I have this uh, vision, you know, the, the, really the key here, I mean, honestly, to, to be able to tap into any of the applications that you mentioned, the real key here is the cost of data distribution to the end customer, right? Once you fix that, you can enable, uh, you know, whole wealth of new value-added service companies that will take the data and transform it into something useful. It's just a matter of hitting the right uh, price point. And with any new technology, you, you know, in a sense, you have what you have with, or with, has been happening with, with Earth observation data, right? Uh, at the beginning, you know, you see the potential of this technology. And, and the most important thing here is that when you think about the potential of Earth observation data to solve all these problems, it's very clear how you can use the data to solve the problems, right? I think this is the most fundamental part. So, so if you can just hit the right price point and the right frequency, the right, right resolution, you know this is going to be useful in all these different industries, right? So what happens with these new technologies when at the beginning, you know, people see this potential and, and they essentially overestimate the capacity of delivering on this potential in the short term, right? Uh, so, you know, the expectations grow faster than the speed at which you can actually deliver on those expectations, right? Uh, and that is very, very common. And then at some point, you know, people start to get the solution because basically say, look, I mean, we've been hearing about this thing for 15 years and it's never happened, right? So it's never going to happen. And then people start correcting in the opposite sense. And they start 
you know, underestimating the uh, potential of actually reaching the, 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 the inflection point uh, where you can actually deliver on the comments. And I think this is exactly where we are today in the Earth Observation Market, right? People spend disillusioned by 15 years of promises that were not fulfilled and, uh, and, and are basically saying, look, we've been hearing about how Earth Observation is going to solve all these problems and, 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 and nobody's delivered in this, so it's just not going to happen in our lifetimes or whatever, right? And, and I think it's a great point to be at because, you know, we will surprise people. We will be able to deliver on these promises and it will happen significantly faster than people expect. And, uh, and, and it's normal, right? I think this is a normal um, for, for, every, for every industry, uh, for every new technology development. It's a very, very similar pattern, you know, where expectations follow this kind of sigmoid uh, uh, form, you know, around around uh, you know the, the the true uh rhythm or path of development that you know proceeds slowly and, and, and eventually gets where you expect it will get right um, so i think it's managing expectations is the most most difficult part. but the potential for this industry is 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 huge and and i'm sure we will deliver on it so from what you're saying, uh, you seem to be looking at more, uh, you know, positioning yourself as, uh, as a, a data provider uh, and not really going the, uh, vertically integrating towards an uh, application, uh, you know, provider, right? So are you looking at also vertically integrating towards uh, specific applications? We, we have been working on, on vertical or specific applications for vertical markets and, I mean, because the, when you're building a platform, you, you need to, in a sense, understand how applications are going to be built and how they're going to be delivered. And, and if you don't do the end-to-end -end applications, it's very hard to build a platform that is actually useful. Right? So we have been doing that. We expect to continue to do that for customers strategically over time. But, uh, but, but yeah, the, the main goal for us would be to become the enablers of you know, new generation of value-added service companies that, that can use a new data source to and, and add on top of it the specific vertical expertise or specific lo local expertise, you know, needed to, to deliver uh, winning products in, 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 you know, small market niches all around the world. And, um, and, and we believe there's not going to be one company uh, that, you know, concentrates all of the applications uh, of Earth Observation for sure, but even in, in verticals, you know, like there's not going to be one company doing data for agriculture, right? And, and delivering on the promise of, of uh, you know, agriculture in general. Agriculture is a thousand different things. And, you know, the same crop in different places in the world means probably a completely different problem. And, and so we believe, you know, there's a lot of room for um, uh, local companies to, to figure out things locally and uh, use best, you know, best available technologies and best available data sources to, to you know, to, to solve local problems. But uh, I think that's gonna happen in, in a bunch of different industries, right? Where local problematic is, you know, is specific enough and, and where uh, uh, distribution channels locally are specific enough that you're gonna need uh, the granularity of a large uh, body added service uh, uh, base to deliver, uh, yeah. All right, so just the last uh, couple of questions to you uh, before we end. I know you had have a long day already with the launch. Uh, so just the last couple of questions I have is uh, one, 
you see now synthetic aperture radar you know uh, even now medium resolutions i guess hyperspectral people trying to do that maybe some things in uh, thermal infrared as well uh, you know how do you see these unlocking in the next uh, coming years against what you are doing already with the high resolution multispectral and you know do you see all of them necessary for the whole ecosystem of data to be successful for applications that is one part of it the second part i wanted to ask you is uh, having done this for now 10 years in a country based like in argentina or even in uruguay and having centers in other places now has the mindset of uh, policy makers in places like argentina and uruguay changed to support you know new policies or new development so that more people can like like you can can do stuff so uh, on the first question i you know, the customers don't care where the data comes from, right? I mean, honestly, the customers don't care about the data, actually. They care about, you know, solving the problems, right? So it's, if it comes from a satellite or if it comes from a drone or if it comes from a person with a magnifying glass that's going to take a look at every leaf in their crops, I mean, they couldn't care less, right? But the care is that they get a solution to the problem at the price point that makes sense, right? Um, what I think happens also is that there's no single source of data that is going to solve every problem for every customer, right? It's just not going to happen. So different, you know, sources of data have different uses. The, most of the value is going to come from combinations of sources of data. So, you know, when you can mix radar with optical, with hyperspectral, with, you know, signals coming from sensors in the ground that you're collecting from an IoT platform with AIS and with, uh, you know, uh, RF monitoring platform and, 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 and whatever it is, when you have all this wealth of geospatial information, again, you, know, you also have the, the public data sources of lower resolution um, data, and then you have higher resolution data sources that can give you more granularity. I think that combination is going to be the key and it's going to be the powerful tool that we will use to, you know, to basically solve problems. So um, I think more sources of data in orbit are better for all of the industry, basically. I think, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, the, the earth, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the planet. We are supply limited in terms of uh, data sources, you know, so, the more data we can collect uh, today, I think, I think the better. I, we do see a lot of complementarity, you know, with SAR and, and optical. We see a lot of applications with that complementarity, uh, you know, is, is very, very important. Um, uh, also, I, I hope to see, you know, more thermal infrared uh, or higher resolution thermal infrared. I hope to see more um, uh, high, you know, higher resolution hyperspectral uh, in, in the market. So all of these data sources, I think, are, are useful. What, what happens in the end is all going to, to turn around cost of distribution of the data to the end customers and, and, and how that data at the price point that you can get it can support different kinds of applications. So unit economics, you know, are, are going to be the driver. At some point, it's going, for some applications, it's going to be okay. You can say, look, with this data source, I'm processing it this way. I can solve 85% of the problems I have with this particular issue. And then for the last 15%, okay, I need to send someone there to take a look, or I might need to use a very expensive data source for the last 15%. And, and that's going to be okay, 
in a sense, right? Because you're basically trying to solve a customer's problem, right? So I think that that's, you know, that's one way to think about uh, integration of different data services. I think it's going to be the key for, for the industry, right? Um, on the other part, you know, you, you asked me about countries' regulations and how, and how they can support it. And I think countries need to realize and governments need to realize that they're essentially competing for, uh, you know, for companies in a sense, right? The companies are today in a situation where they, you can decide to locate different parts of your company and to add value in different ways in different countries, depending on, you know, the resources that you have available in each place. And that comes from, you know, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, process, the whole life cycle from design to, you know, to, to component manufacturing, to assembly and integration, to launch, uh, to operations, to processing of the data, distribution of the services, you know, sales and marketing, financial structuring, like there's a whole bunch of things that you do in the life cycle of a company in the, or a product. And, and for each one of the portions of that life cycle, you can actually choose the right location. So countries need to get on the mindset that they are essentially competing for uh, locating or, or, or receiving, um, you know, some or all of the portions of what a company does and, and setting the environments where, you know, where that actually makes sense. Um, so to that extent, you know, you, you can start doing R&D in Argentina as we do, and do the design there, but then you manufacture as we do in Uruguay, and then you set up, you know, a, a value-added product team in Barcelona, where I'm currently at. And, uh, you know, you can pick places based on the talent that you have available, based on the uh, 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 context and the, and the regulation. And I think we need to get used to it. Yeah, that's kind of the world that we live in, and countries need to get into the mindset of, you know, of, of how, how they compete for for, you know, for companies to, to locate there and to essentially in the end pay taxes there, right? Which is what countries want. <laughs> so, so I think that's how I would think about it. So Emiliano, thank you very much for being a guest on. So I think it's uh, one of the most insightful episodes I've ever uh, recorded. You know, you having discussed so much the intricacies of coming from Argentina, you know, learning about all the hoops and, you know, work, making it work to make the whole thing work. So it's saying it's one of the most... Uh, uh, insightful stories. I think there's a lot of lessons for us uh, in India and also for the government in India to review, you know, things like this. And hopefully we'll see more of our entrepreneurs take uh, notice and uh, hopefully, you know, some of them can also replicate what you've also done in the process. So thank you so much for taking time. Thank you, Narayan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for thoughtful questions.